Wow, it has been a bit since we dropped a new episode, and I'm glad to have you back listening to the latest Global in the Granite State, a podcast of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the executive director of the council and your host for this podcast. For those first-time listeners, the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire is a nonprofit, nonpartisan, community-based organization dedicated to helping people better understand the issues driving global events today. As a part of this effort, we host engaging conversations with expert speakers who can highlight key issues to help you guide your thinking on critical issues. I appreciate you taking the time to join this discussion and push global understanding forward. If you enjoy these conversations, click the subscribe button in your podcast app and join our email list at wacnh.org. A quick thank you to all the wonderful supporters who make our work possible. From our members to donors and sponsors, none of these critical conversations could occur without your support. A truly special thank you to McLean Middleton for your long-term engagement with this podcast, as your support provides resources necessary to ensure this podcast is possible. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at McLean.com. All right, let's get to the show. in Ukraine drags into its third year, a new front may be opening up in the shadows as Putin continues to try and find ways to disrupt Western support. Over the past few months, migrants from across the Middle East and North Africa have been arriving at the Russian-Finnish border looking to apply for asylum. This has not simply been a slight uptick in applications, but rather a growing surge of people coming to the border through Russia. In September of 2023, there was an average of 13 applications made at the eight land boarding crossings that connect the two countries. In only the first two weeks of November, there were over 500 applications for asylum. In response to this influx, the Finnish government gradually closed all eight crossings over the course of a month, leaving Russia and Finland separated for the first time in years. Now, in international law, people do have the right to seek asylum, but there are restrictions on that. If you want to learn more about that, check out our asylum conversation from November 9th on our website. In the past, Finland has proved welcoming to asylees and refugees, as shown by the 2015 refugee crisis, but the overall public was less welcoming this time around. What has changed? The surge of asylum seekers has been viewed as a hybrid attack by the government of Russia, encouraging these people to transit through that country and seek asylum in Finland, which would give them access to the European Union. While many people have seen this as a new form of pressure campaign, we spoke with Kelly Greenhill, a professor of political science and international relations at Tufts University and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, the author of a 2011 book entitled Weapons of Mass Migration, and a 2018 alumnus of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire Speakers series, having discussed the ideas of political coercion as it relates to international relations. We invited her to talk with us about the long history of using people 
as a political tool to extract concessions from an opponent. While many people may not have heard of this tactic before, it is not the case that this is a new form of attack. This has been happening for a very long time, just in a largely hidden way. So it is, in some sense, beneficial that it's happening now out in the open because potential target states are more attuned and can potentially make themselves better equipped to combat the use of this tool or to respond. But on the other hand, we are unfortunately now seeing more of what I have started calling the weaponization of the weaponization of migration in that some domestic political actors are accusing international actors of weaponizing migration when they may not actually be doing so in order to justify the passage of unethical and possibly illegal policies at home, tightening immigration laws and tightening asylum provisions, essentially to do things they wanted to do anyway, but under the guise of we're protecting ourselves against the weaponization of migration. However, in the case of Finland, it seems pretty apparent that they are responding to a manufactured crisis at the hands of Russia and felt a strong need to respond forcefully to this issue. Before we get too deep into the present day, I wanted to first outline the idea of weaponized migration. As Dr. Greenhill outlined for me, it is important to note that this is not the natural result of a displacement caused by an ongoing conflict, but rather... These movements of people are quite often the result of deliberate and calculated actions, you know, designed, engineered, and executed in the service of political, military, and or economic ends. And so a chunk of my research focuses on these intentionally generated and exploited migrations, which I refer to alternatively as strategically engineered migrations, or simply, as you say, weaponized migration. And weaponized migration or strategically engineered migrations, you know, those are in or out migrations that are deliberately created, impeded, or manipulated, or sometimes, you know, simply threatened in order to, as I say, achieve political, economic, and or military aims. Within this broad term, Dr. Greenhill breaks it down even further into four different categories. Most of my work on is what I call coercive engineered migration, and it's those cross-border population movements that are, again, created, impeded, manipulated, or simply threatened, with a focus on an international target in order to extract political, military, or economic concessions from a target state or state. Whereas in traditional military coercion, when actors want to extract concessions, they often use military force or other tools. In coercive injury migration, the key tool or weapon is you know, essentially people pressure, threatening to unleash population movements or keep people in place to achieve goals that would be either unattainable or too costly to pursue through military means or other coercive means. So whereas the targets of this type of coercion are generally governments, foreign state or states, the real victims, you know, bear saying of this type of coercion are the displaced people who are used you know, as bargaining chips. A second kind of strategic migration is what I call dispossessive injury migration. It includes what is commonly known as ethnic conflict. And it's those threatened or actual out migrations where uh, states use movements of people to seize the territory or the property of the displaced or to eliminate the displaced population as a political or economic threat to the dominance of the group that's engineering the migration. Again, common feature of politics, both international and domestic for a very long time. The third kind of strategic injured migration is exportive injured migration, 
where the goal is to strengthen a government's domestic political position by expelling dissidents or to discomfort, humiliate, or an extremist destabilize a foreign government or governments. The final form of strategic engineer migration is militarized engineer migration, and it's often used in the midst of armed conflict to allow belligerents to gain military advantage against an adversary. This can happen by the disruption or destruction of the opponent's command and control, its logistics, or its movement capabilities. Sometimes militarized engineer migration is used to enhance one's own force structure by press ganging those who are displaced into you know, joining the one's army. All parties to the Syrian civil war used militarized engineer migration to impede their adversaries and to boost their own military strength to some degree. One might argue that in the current Israel-Hamas war that we've seen multiple kinds of strategic engineer migration in play, and we could talk more about that as time goes by. While these forms of coercion have been around since biblical times, Dr. Greenhill's research has really focused on the phenomenon for the past 65 years. I have identified in my own research at least 100 cases of attempted course of engineer migration simply since the ratification of the 1951 Refugee Convention. Not all of those cases have been successful, but quite often when this tool is used, it is successful in a, just under three quarters of the identified cases. Uh, coursers obtained at least some of their stated goals, and in about half of all cases, they obtained more or less all of what I can identify that their stated objectives. One might imagine, well, 50%, that's not a very high number, right? That's like a coin toss. But I would say, actually, historically, when we think about the efficacy of coercion, we take, for instance, the U.S.'s own track record. So supposedly the world's most powerful military has a force of diplomatic success rate of, according to the best estimates, just about 40%, maybe a little bit lower. So course of engineer migration is pretty successful for those actors who use it. It may be the case that it's still a pretty lousy instrument of coercion that is only used by actors when they envision that the target is pretty darn vulnerable. However, when used in an effective way, this can be a highly powerful tool. If even just the threat of a coerced forced migration is taken seriously by the targeted state. Let's take the example of deposed Haitian leader Jean-Bertrand Aristide in 1994. So in the case of Haiti that you bring up, then exiled President Jean-Bertrand Aristide was able to actually persuade the United States to launch a military operation to see him reinstalled into power in Haiti and to get the U.S. to help oust the sitting military junta. He wasn't even a weak actor in power in his country, but rather sitting in exile, able to persuade the Clinton administration to use the U.S. military to see him reinstalled into power, which is pretty impressive as a um, use of this unfortunate unconventional tool. I would also just note that while of the cases I've identified, a disproportionate share of them are weaker actors persuading more powerful actors for you know, reasons that you've identified, as well as a few others. This is a tool that is sometimes used by powerful states, even you know, strong states like the United States, like the Russian Federation, and like other great powers, quote unquote, have used weaponized migration as well. This tool has been used by autocrats and democrats alike and by powerful states as well as by weaker states. I would note that historically, 
the weaker states have been more successful <laughs> as a rule in using it than have been the more powerful states. As with many different forms of conflict between states, it can be fuzzy whether a displacement is a natural outcome or something manufactured. Of course, many states accused of weaponizing migrants have denied having any role in the movement of people. Other states have termed their demands for assistance as simply the outcropping of supporting large numbers of refugees within their borders, rather than allowing them to transit to another country. You see this with the agreement between the European Union and Turkey to provide over 6 billion euros to Turkey, as well as visa-free travel for Turkish citizens to the EU, and a restarting of talks for Turkey to join the European Union. How do we distinguish between calls for assistance and the coercive actions aimed to extract concessions? So I guess the first thing I would say is those are not necessarily mutually exclusive. From the perspective of Turkey, they're way up there in terms of the number of refugees that they're hosting. A disproportionate share, shall we say. I am unsurprised and I'm sympathetic that they want assistance in defraying the cost. And if more powerful states would otherwise be forced to bear the burden, don't voluntarily pony up then states like Turkey are sometimes driven to turn to coercion. So yes, it could be simultaneously true that they're just asking for assistance, but if they don't get that assistance, they may be <laughs> forced to say, if you don't, then we will. And so to more directly answer your question of how I determine that something is coercion, three separate questions need to be answered in the affirmative. So first, you know, I asked the question of whether or not a real or threatened out-migration appears to have been orchestrated. So it could be that people moved without being asked. Per the conventional wisdom, they felt compelled on an individual level to flee. So if there was an orchestration, then it's simply not a case of engineered migration period. This is just people fleeing for their lives or moving in search of a, a better life. But if I can satisfy myself that, yes, the movement appears to have been orchestrated or a threat was issued that there will be orchestration. Then I move on to the second question where I ask, is it strategic? So one might imagine that an out-migration could be intentional and controlled by those engineering the migration, but not for strategic motivations, but simply out of anger or a fit of pique at a desire for revenge. So it's engineered, it's orchestrated, but it's not strategic. If I can satisfy myself that it appears to have been motivated by one of the strategic reasons, be it dispossessing people of their territory for military advantage, to potentially destabilize a neighbor or to humiliate, discomfort them, or to extract concessions, then I say, okay, check, this is strategic engineered migration. But then I still have to ask, well, is it coercive or is it, you know, is it one of these others? So what uh, other motivations. So if I am going to deem it a case of course of injury migration, I then have to ask, was there evidence of a threat being issued? Where did the perpetrator issue demands? Did they say, you know, if you give me X, I won't do Y, or if you don't give me X, I will do Y. And you know, if and only if all three of those questions are answered in the affirmative, do I call the case attempted course of injury migration? This is not to mean that it is any better if a government or armed group is only doing one or two of the three things, but it is important to understand the motivations to better understand how, why, and what potential responses there are for these cases. 
We have seen two recent incidents, Russia as mentioned earlier, and Belarus in 2021, that might not rise to the full definition of coercive migration, but certainly have impacted the people being used as pawns in a similar way. Some people have claimed that these are coercive cases. I haven't seen evidence that they're coercive. To me, they look exportive, as in Russia's trying to create some headaches for the European Union, just as Belarus is trying to create some headaches for the European Union. In the case of Belarus, I don't actually have to guess because Lukashenko kind of said, yeah, I'm trying to trying to create, create some headaches for the European Union. In both the Belarusian case and the Russian case, one could reasonably speculate that they might be coercive. And some people have said, well, Lukashenko wanted the EU to lift sanctions on his country. That's possibly true. If there's classified data that says that, I haven't seen it. I might have imagined that given that these claims have been made, someone might have actually shown us that data by now, but I could be wrong. In the case of both Belarus and Russia, I find it very hard to understand how all of these potential asylum seekers from northern Iraq, from Afghanistan, from countries far afield could have somehow found themselves in Minsk or in parts of Russia close to the Finnish border and then bust, as in the case of Belarus, to the border or given bicycles <laughs> to the border if there was no complicity or involvement of actors on the ground. Of course, there are other ways that armed groups or governments can leverage the movement of people for their own benefit. An army can mobilize civilians to try and slow down an invading force, providing human impediments to the movement of mechanized units. They can also hide amongst the civilian population for a number of reasons, from the use of human shields to simply being able to operate clandestinely or utilize civilian resources for their own benefit. We have seen Hamas accused of many of these tactics in the war with Israel. We have also seen the Israeli government telling civilian populations of Gaza to move to different parts of the enclave in advance of attacks, indicating that they need people out of the way so they can clear out the Hamas militants. Again, with many of the issues surrounding the war, and specifically these types of migrations, we have to look closely to understand the motivations and the implications of what is happening. This is particularly important as Israel prepares a defense against South Africa filing a legal case at the International Court of Justice, accusing Israel of committing genocide against the Palestinians. I want to be clear here, the case has yet to be decided, so this is not an attempt to prejudge anything, simply to provide some insights with a lot left to be figured out. The Israeli government has encouraged people to flee but when the Israeli government first encouraged Gazans to move, they did so in a way that was like a clear time limited threat, which is under international law, what could be called forcible transfer. So one can contest or sort of think about whether this is humanitarian or not, certainly warning people that the area in which they're residing is going to be attacked is humanitarian. The question is, why is that warning being issued? And secondarily, how long are people expected to be gone? So the Israelis are certainly not alone in warning people that an area would be attacked. That's quite common in war. And if the expectation is that folks can then return to their home after the conflict is over, or even before the conflict is over, that's considered quite legitimate. It is not clear yet whether or not the expectation is that everybody will return home in Gaza and it's an ongoing military operation, so we'll see. It's very complicated, but 
it can be both humanitarian and militarized NGO migration simultaneously. And the question then also becomes from the perspective of whom. And it's quite logical that if the IDF went to launch ground in or has, you know, uh, launched ground invasion into Gaza, that they would want to get civilians out of the way for the reasons we've already discussed. Makes complete sense. Killing fewer of them along the way, obviously, is a good thing. One could raise questions, of course, that if their intent was to minimize civilian casualties, some of the other collective punishment strategies that seem to be underway raise some questions. But that's arguably, again, a, a separate topic. Of course, in this case, Hamas has also encouraged people to stay where they are and not move away from the areas that are coming under attack. This could simultaneously be an effort to prevent a forced displacement, as recently Israel's finance minister Bezalel Smotrich suggested that only one to 200,000 Palestinians should be allowed to stay and that Israeli settlers could come in and, quote, make the desert bloom. But it could also be an effort to maximize the number of civilian casualties making it harder for Israel to complete its objective of eliminating Hamas. I'm not in a position to make those judgments, so we'll leave it to people much smarter than me to decide. So, one of the themes you might have picked up on throughout this conversation is that there is a lot of haziness in what is going on, how, and why, and what groups want out of their efforts. This plausible deniability can allow the groups looking to gain from these movements of people the ability to shield themselves from public rebuke, embarrass their targets, and gain the upper hand in the public relations game. If Putin can believably state that he has nothing to do with the people showing up at Finland's border, he can then point to Finland not upholding their stated humanitarian commitments by not allowing these people in. Pictures of migrants being forcibly pushed back from the Polish border in freezing conditions in 2021 was not a good look for the government globally. But the conversation changed when Lukashenko was touting his efforts to manufacture this crisis. However, those threatening or manufacturing these crises have become more public about what they are doing in recent years. As with everything in this conversation, there are positives and negatives related to this shift. Historically, it was much less common, at least what I've uncovered in my research, for coercers to make their threats publicly. So quite often, as say, for instance, in the aforementioned example of the Hanukkah regime, uh, but certainly not limited, threats were issued government to government. And that allowed for even greater plausible deniability, but also allowed for the issuance of coercive threats. Whereas you know, with Russia, if they're saying we're not doing this and they're not actually saying don't do this or else, or give us X or else, then yes, they have plausible deniability, but if they're trying to coerce, it's a little bit hard to know what to give them. <laughs> well, we can kind of guess what they might want, but that's a, a side issue. So plausible deniability can be good for the coercer because they may not suffer the same degree of international opprobrium for using people as weapons. It was also handy for targets because no target wants to be seen as kowtowing or giving in to tin pot dictators or authoritarian leaders. So it was like, it could be like a dirty little secret that happened on the sly. Without a doubt, it is important to talk about the people who are being used as political pawns in high stakes fights around the world, including here in the United States, not just about the groups engineering or combating these movements. It is all too easy to reduce them to simple numbers and disassociate that these are individuals who are looking for a better life or simply to survive. 
So what outcomes have we seen over the 100 cases that Dr. Greenhill has identified? It's highly variable. So much depends on the complexion, and I mean that both racially and otherwise, of the identity of those who are exploited. And if they are broadly defined, you know, us versus them, if they are considered us, however, us is defined, and that changes over time and across conflicts and crises and geography. But if they are us, uh, then, and us, I mean, in the context of the target state, then coercion is actually much less likely to be successful because the target can say, go ahead and send as many of these people as you'd like we will welcome them in because they are us. And maybe we will only welcome in, them in on a temporary basis. Hello, Ukrainians, uh, <laughs> or, or what we imagine to be a temporary basis, or it might be more permanent. So if they're us, coercion can be less effective. And those who are exploited or treated as pawns could end up resettled and end up as citizens in the target country or resettled in a third country. And the while they have been displaced from their homes, and that's indescribably awful, they can end up okay. Their families can end up okay. All will be eventually well. It doesn't undo the damage, but the ultimate outcome can be a good one from a consequentialist perspective. If they are deemed them and not welcome, then coercion can quite often be effective because the target government might be incentivized to concede to the coercer's demands to make the problem go away. But it's most effective when some people think that the group is us and other people think that the group is them inside the same target state. So when there is a heterogeneous response to a group inside a target state, as in, you know, say, there's a group of people who are pro-refugee, generally speaking, mobilized to take a group in, whereas those who are more xenophobic or nativist say we're opposed to any more people coming in. If both of those groups are mobilized at the same time, then coercion can be quite effective. If everybody thinks the group is undesirable, then coercion also tends to be less effective because the target state can say, to your worst, we're not going to take them in, but also our population, our society, the polity doesn't want these people. So we're going to keep the border closed, send them home, repatriate them, call them migrants and not refugees. And we're not going to pay a, a significant domestic political price for doing so because they're not us. It is particularly interesting to realize that the target nation has to experience an internal conflict over refugees in order to make this an effective tactic leading to one of the solutions to combating this form of coercion, working to control the narrative. You can see this in the response to the Russia-Finland border closures, as the Finnish government has effectively messaged to its people and the world that this is a crisis driven by Russia in the context of its desire to attack and disrupt the West. This has gotten the people of Finland behind the idea to close the border and push these people back into Russia. Another option is to simply accept these people and try to resettle them, as an attempt to prevent encouraging others to take similar actions. When Poland pushed migrants back into Belarus, it was a black eye for the country for a while. Russia may have taken that lesson and applied it to the current crisis, although it has not worked in the same way. It seems a little like there are no good solutions here, as each response carries a risk for the target country or population. Much as they might not wish to concede, they can concede. And quite often they do, in spite of the potential threats of recidivism. 
uh, all they can try to do is say, it worked this time, but we're going to be better prepared <laughs> next time. And sometimes that works. It is also the case that some target governments have gotten so accustomed to recidivism that they kind of build into their arrangements with serial coercers. I'm not going to cite any specific examples just to protect the guilty. I assure you that there are dyads or pairs of countries that say, yes, I know you're going to come back to me and I'm going to up the payoff or I'm going to concede next time as well, but don't overplay your hand and rock the boat. So it's kind of an extortion racket in some cases that sort of, there's certain governments that are now, if you will, kind of paying protection money <laughs> to, <laughs> to serial coercers. You don't create problems for me and I will continue to pay your, your protection money. And I'm sorry that sounds really horrible, but that's what's going on. Let's say, I'll just say between some European countries and some neighbors of European countries without saying more. That's an option and it's not limited to Europe. There are also less serial extortionate options, which is target states can work to make the acceptance or assimilation of groups more palatable to a larger segment of their population. And they can do so by trying to reframe the group as us or convince the domestic population that even if they're not us, they can readily become us or we are responsible for them, even if they aren't us. So I can give you an historical example of the Indo-Chinese boat people who were originally not going to be welcomed. And it was only after the ASEAN countries essentially threatened to push these boat people out to sea and let them drown that the U.S. stepped up to the plate. And so we often, you know, historically, when we tell the narrative about how the U.S. responded to the Indo-Chinese you know, boat people crisis, it was a grand humanitarian gesture. And we, we settled 1.3 million people. What nobody likes to talk about is the fact that that only happened <laughs> after the U.S. was coerced into doing the right thing. But the U.S. did successfully resettle all of these Indo-Chinese people. And we have booming, thriving communities in this country. And that's proof that assimilation you know, can work and it can be a net economic and social and you know, cultural benefit to the country to take in groups, even those who are not us, quote unquote. Governments can also, in theory, if they are willing to work on this and not wait until a crisis erupts, remind their populations how dependent they are on the kind of labor that some of these influxes could provide in grain societies where there are huge holes in the labor market, countries could benefit materially from allowing more people in. The U.S.'s own population growth rate would be near zero, I think, without immigration. And yes, in an ideal world, the immigration would happen only through legal, normalized channels, but we don't always get to choose. So education campaigns can help. It's also historically been, and I can't stress this enough, really, really important for target governments to provide aid to the communities who are expected to host groups that are coming in or people who are coming in, whether to offer them side payments to you know offset the costs, to just make resettlement funds available, not in ways that could actually and sometimes do create jealousies and to lead you know, domestic populations to think that those who are coming in are getting a better deal than those who live here. That's absolutely deeply problematic, be counterproductive, 
But if uh, significant funds can be provided to communities to kind of ease the way for assimilation or hosting, that can be hugely, hugely effective, both in the short term over the long or over the longer term. Uh, because as much as immigration can be a net economic positive over time, the short-term adjustment costs and short-term hosting costs are significant. And we shouldn't fool ourselves. One only needs to read the newspapers about how traditionally blue liberal northeastern states in New York City. <laughs> there are some people who are traditionally very acceptant are becoming somewhat less acceptant and generous when the costs are being borne by them as opposed to by frontline states, Texas and Florida, Arizona, and so on and so forth. Funding can come through, education can help. There's two more drastic things that can be undertaken. I guess I should have said before I, I started, I think it's become clear as I've paddled on, but none of these responses is a silver bullet and all of them comes with pros and cons. If there were perfect way to deal with weaponized migration, we would certainly be using it already. So concession comes with the possibility of recidivism and the creation of extortion rackets. Assimilation comes with significant short-term costs and potential pushback and blowback. There's an alternative, which is not one that I recommend at all, but is relatively common, which is to essentially roll up the welcome mat and say, we're just not taking anymore. And that's equivalent to you can do your worst, you can send them, but we're not taking them in. So you can't coerce us. And we are seeing, unfortunately, a tightening of asylum rules and immigration rules around the world, which possibly could make this tool less effective over time. There are reasons why I think it'll still be quite effective, but it becomes harder for the segment of societies that are in favor of taking people in to essentially say legally you're obligated to protect these people if the laws have changed to allow for more draconian responses and uh, less ethically and legally generous treatment of those who are being victimized in this way. Final option is one can change conditions on the ground in states of origin where you know, one option is foreign imposed regime change. I also do not recommend this because <laughs> quite often we end up with bigger outflows than we were experiencing before. So in Libya, I think many of those who thought that the removal of Gaddafi would mean the end of serial weaponization of migration have been sadly surprised to find out that not only did weaponized migration not end with Gaddafi's ouster, but now there are two groups, <laughs> competing militias, weaponizing migration against European states. And there was vastly expanded quantity of displacement, not only in Libya, but across the surrounding regions. As we wrap up this conversation, I asked Dr. Greenhill to provide the key takeaways from her research and what is most important to remember as governments continue to try and respond to migrations of millions of people, both forced, unforced, and coercive. It is important to remember. It is used by unsavory, illiberal actors with great regularity. It is also a tool that is used by powerful actors or strong actors and by democracies. And we ought not to forget that. And we also ought not to whitewash the history of the use of this tool because it leaves us more poorly equipped to respond to future uses.
Thank you to everyone for taking the time to listen to this conversation, and I hope you have gained important insights into the challenges faced by the weaponization of migration. Many times, you can feel powerless to make changes in international relations. However, this is one area where community action can really make an impact. As you have heard, these tactics become less effective when countries and communities actually welcome in the people being used to try and extract concessions from their countries. An argument can be made that instead of sending money and support to countries that are looking to extract these things from your government, that money might be better spent in welcoming people, keeping those funds spent domestically instead, and reaping the benefits of the increased labor supply and improving economies. In terms of displacements for replacement, the international community can call out bad actors and demand that they are held accountable for these actions. In the end, all forms of weaponizing the movement of people should not be accepted. This has been The Global in the Granite State, a podcast of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Tim Horgan continues as the producer, director, host, audio engineer, fact checker, editor, copywriter, and all other roles for the podcast. As always, our theme music is Admin by A.A. Alto, and our interlude music is Passion by Alexi Action. We will return next month with another great conversation on the next global issue to crop up in 2024. If you have any comments or suggestions or topics you would like us to explore, email us at council at wacnh.org. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.